0: Richard Mao is a leading evangelical educator and thinker. He is conservative on the charged issue of same-sex marriage, and he is a leader in challenging his fellow conservative Christians and the rest of us to civility and humility in public life. This hour, as part of the Civil Conversations Project, we gather his wisdom on navigating fear and the temptation it brings to distort the truth about those we see as enemies
1: the fact that our kids are going to school together, that we are in the same parking lots, we are in the same supermarket aisles, we're driving the same freeways, uh, that there's a common life. And uh, beneath all of that, there's something that binds human beings together that politics can't create and it shouldn't be able to destroy. We really need to be thinking as people of faith, How is it that our common life can flourish?
2: I'm Krista Tippett on Being. Stay with us. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash being. American public life feels as fragile and divided to
0: many of us as at any time in recent memory. There are chasms between us, open questions on subjects both intimate and public that will not truly be resolved any time soon. And conservative Christian voices are prominent in our most heated debates. So this hour for our Civil Conversations project, I draw out a leading evangelical thinker and educator, Richard Mao. Twenty-five years ago, he wrote a book called Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. Since that time, he's pursued real relationship with people who differ from him. This includes LGBT individuals and groups, though he is conservative on the charged issue of same-sex marriage. Richard Mao believes that the measure of Christian fidelity is as much about how one treats others as about the positions one takes. And he insists that we all must find whole new ways to be in relationship with different others, even while holding passionate disagreements. He offers historical as well as spiritual perspective on navigating fear and the temptation it brings to distort the truth about those perceived as enemies.
1: For Christians who take the Bible seriously, it isn't that we have these convictions and then we also got to try to be civil. But the truth element of civility is itself one of the convictions.
0: From American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Restoring Political Civility, an Evangelical View. Richard Mao is a Christian philosopher by training. Since 1993, he's been president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. This is one of the largest centers of evangelical higher education in the world, with more than 4,000 students from over 100 denominations and 70 countries. Richard Mao himself has long been a kind of bridge person in U.S. Christianity, insisting that Christian virtue must be measured by how people are treated as much as by the positions one takes. Mao himself became estranged from the church for a number of years in his early adulthood in the 1960s. At that time, he was involved in the civil rights movement, on which he felt his church had been sinfully slow to engage. He came back to an evangelical tradition that he experienced as a contrast to the fundamentalist intolerance with which he was raised.
1: The kind of evangelical fundamentalist Christianity that formed me early on uh, had a very strong streak of incivility. You know? mm. uh, we were people that uh, we not only had enemies, but we felt that it was essential to our our spiritual identity that we have enemies. You
0: know, right? Because it was about oh, you, defining yourselves over against, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I've been thinking about this lately in terms of uh, the the Pope going to Scotland. (laughs) Uh, You know, the the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian denomination to which I belong. Uh, They revised it. They put it all on a footnote. But that Westminster Confession of the Reformation era uh, says that the Pope is the Antichrist and uh, I was raised in a world in which it was important to look out for the Antichrist, you know. And uh, I mean, you know, that number in the Book of Revelation, the number of the beast, 666, people had this wild stuff. Uh, you
0: know, I, my grandfather also believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. So
1: yeah. And then uh, really Vatican II kind of made it more and more difficult. Uh, and uh, really, into the '50s you got uh, a very strong anti-communism with uh, Joe McCarthy and, right. and the like, and, and pretty soon it was Stalin, you know so and, you're saying the uh,
0: Antichrist has changed across your lifetime?
1: Yeah, uh-huh yeah, so and, uh, and, and so we hated communists, and I noticed right around 1980 that it began to shift to Islam.
0: Hmm, really and that early. You're getting,
1: yeah, and you're getting a lot of uh today, you know, overtly anti anti Muslim stuff. And uh it's almost as if we've always gotta have somebody that we we feel legitimate uh about really hating. And uh that's I think intrinsic to the kind of uh fundamentalist Christianity. Uh with conspiracy theories and antichrists and beasts and mm. all the rest. And, and so, you know, to to all of a sudden start thinking about civility and uh, not allowing yourself to get into that kind of thing has been a kind of a shift for me spiritually.
0: Right. You know, you, you quote a line, a couple of lines of Yeats, which maybe this is a uh, a kind of an extreme version, but it certainly is a way that it can look looking at this issue of incivility um the The lines are the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity yeah. and then you you t- you take a phrase that martin Marty coined that that what we need is convicted civility, and that 's really a thesis that you 've carried forward and developed, so i want to know what you what you mean by convicted civility,
1: yeah. The larger context there was that Marty said, you know, a lot of people today who have strong convictions are not very civil. And a lot of people who are civil don't have very strong convictions. And what we really need is convicted civility. And it's that, you know, how do we uh, look at people with whom we have real disagreements, uh, serious disagreements, and at the same time, uh, treat them you know the biblical term there are two wonderful uh, terms there uh, in the bible in the old testament jeremiah says uh, uh, seek the shalom the the welfare it's usually translated but seek the shalom of the city in which you are God has placed you mm. and uh, uh, because in its shalom you will find your shalom and, and how do we how do we look at uh, what was in that context you know hebrew people in exile uh uh, trying to figure out how in the world they've got to relate to a pagan culture. And then God says, seek their shalom, seek their mm. well-being. Uh, and, you know, even if you disagree radically with them. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says uh, that we have to honor all human beings and uh, have a have a regard for their well-being. and And I take those to be sort of different ways of getting at a very common biblical theme. What does it mean for me to honor the Muslim, to honor the Mormon, to honor uh, people of uh, of unbelief who are hostile toward Christianity? What does it mean to, to honor them? And then I think we need to work at the, the theology there. You know, how do we view other people?
0: I want to just test something out on you that I've thought about a lot over the years, that— as American culture started to become genuinely pluralistic in the, around the 1960s, the virtue that was put forward, the civic virtue that we started to learn and educate uh, into our children was the virtue of tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that that for religious people, for, for all kinds of religious people, tolerance is not nearly a big enough word. No, it's It's, not. it's a cerebral word. I mean, it, yeah. to me, it doesn't stretch to compassion, to honoring, you know, right. as you just said. and right. I, So I've wondered if we really are now at the beginning of learning what those virtues are that we need for our common life, and that maybe, in fact, religious people, right, theology, should have a very rich role to play in that.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the Tolerance, toleration. You know, you say, well, you know, my neighbor next door practices her tuba every day for two hours and I get sick of it, but I tolerate it. Right. Well, tolerate there is just means you you don't tell her how angry you are.
0: Right. And the medical term tolerance is like how much can you take before you get sick or you have a bad reaction,
1: (laughs) which is actually the way it's functioned. Right. And and it really gets to. uh, it has to do with the virtues. I, I'm glad you use that term because you know to be civil. It comes from "civitas," uh, and it means learning how to live in the city. And uh, mm. the origin with a guy like Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, who said early on, as little children, we have a natural uh, sense of kinship. Uh, We have strong positive feelings toward those who are blood relatives, our mother, my father, uh, sisters and brothers, cousins and the like. And then as we grow up, we have some of those same positive feelings that develop toward friends. And so we go from uh, kinship and we build on that to a broader sense of friendship where you have that same sense of bonding or something like it. That isn't just based on blood relative stuff. But he said to really grow up, to be a mature human being, is to uh, learn in the public square to have that same sense of bonding to people from other cities, people who are very different than yourself. And uh, that's not just toleration, but it's a, a sense that what I owe to my mother because she brought me into this world... What I owe to my friends because of shared uh, experiences and memories and and delights, I also owe to the stranger. Why? Because they're human like me. And I've got to begin to think of humanness as such, as a a kind of bonding uh, relationship.
0: What you just said is powerful, and then, at the same time, I'm I'm not telling you anything new. I mean, you are an evangelical educator, philosopher, leader, um, and you also know that evangelical Christians and and other, some other forms of Christianity have been very closely associated with incivility. In recent years, especially in American political life, now that's it's not the whole story of Evangelical Christianity or Christianity, but but that that association is undeniable. So, partly, what I want to do is uh, I want to uh, try to get a, your sense of the big picture here. I, I would say right now, as you and I are speaking, a lot of Americans may have the sense again, anew, that there are some really vitriolic and damaging religious sentiments and voices um that that have become very vocal in our public life and i want to know what you think this does and doesn't have to do with the evolution of evangelical christianity in public life so you know we've talked about this a lot on this program in the last few years in the early 20th century in fact it was the people we would today call evangelical christians who pretty much withdrew from public life and said we will care about private morality and and personal salvation at the end of the 20th century um Evangelical Christians reemerged in in public life and and in electoral political life. President Bush was in office, which was maybe the apex of that development. And then I think a lot of people felt like evangelicals got pretty quiet in the last couple of years. And then there is this surge of, I don't know, Tea Party, Glenn Beck, anti Islamic sentiment um, that often has religious overtones. And so I just want to ask you from your vantage point, is this a new stage? You know, How would you describe this as part of the big picture? See, I
1: think that evangelicalism constantly goes back and forth, not only from uh, between uh, uh, sort of alienation from the culture to a kind of takeover mentality, hmm. uh, but to back and forth between two sort of theologies uh, that bear on that. Uh, all of those decades in the 20th century when evangelicals said, you know, we're, this world is not our home. Uh, we're bound right, for heaven. Right. And our our main job is to get other individuals saved so that they can go to heaven with us. And, and uh, to try to change society is like trying to uh, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, this is a, a sinking ship. Uh, that was undergirded by an apocalyptic theology, a theology that the world is getting worse and worse. And
0: also that was the early 20th century. You had world wars. You had global economic yeah. depression, right? I mean, there were reasons to look around and say that.
1: Yeah, but and but also a tremendous sense of loss. I mean, evangelicalism in the 19th century, uh, for a good part of the 19th century, was the American uh, religion, you know. Um, right. You know, God bless America, oh, beautiful for sacred dreams and all this stuff. And uh, but as George Marsden, the historian, pointed out, that uh, going from the 19th to the 20th century for many evangelicals was like an immigration experience. It, it was a it was a spiritual immigration. Suddenly they looked around and said, "They have taken away my nation, and I do not know where they have laid it." You know, mm. and uh, it was suddenly a strange country that we were in. Uh, we no longer felt at home here. But something happened around 1980, and Jerry Falwell and all moral that. Moral something happened around,
0: Christian yeah.
1: coalition. And that was the now, they, right there. You know, the very interesting thing: for 80 years, they had seen themselves as a moral minority on the edges of culture, waiting for the whole thing to blow up. And suddenly, in 1980, they announced that they are the moral majority. I mean, what went on there? Hmm. And uh, I, I think, for one thing, there was a class shift. Uh, my wife and I were traveling across the country one time, and somebody asked Phyllis to uh, take pictures of churches along the way for a kind of dictionary of American Christianity. And so we'd be going across Highway 80 in Nebraska, and we'd get off the road and go into this little town. And, and it, typically it went like this, that the Presbyterian and Methodist Episcopal churches were at the center of town. And then over across the tracks, uh, there was a, a Pentecostal a little kind of shack type yeah. church, you know, or a Nazarene church. Well, today those churches own the best real estate in town,
0: right? You right.
1: Know? And they have uh, brand new big buildings.
0: Are,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and they are the mega churches, and we've seen this tremendous decline of uh, of mainline Protestantism, and so Evangelicals suddenly around 1980 were feeling a new leverage, a new cultural power. And uh, they were very upset about the sexual revolution and uh, what that was doing to what their children were being taught in schools and what they were seeing on local magazine rack displays in the local grocery store and and all the rest. And uh, they suddenly decided we're going to take this country back. And then uh, there was a lot of disillusionment with that. Uh, You know, Falwell died and Pat Robertson made some— Really uh, strange, <laughs> uh, strange pronouncements, and there was a lot of embarrassment with Ted Haggard and and others. And there was a kind of uh, quieting, but somehow, you know, the Glenn Beck phenomenon and uh, some other things have, uh, and the anti-Islam yeah, stuff yeah. has uh, has revived that sense that uh, they're they're taking something away from us, and we got to get it back.
0: I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, restoring political civility. I'm speaking with Richard Mao. He's a prominent evangelical educator and Christian philosopher. Across the years, he's helped lead evangelical dialogues with Jews, Mormons, and Muslims. He's also engaged proactively with LGBT individuals and groups, though he does not support gay marriage. Among his many books, in 1992, Richard Mao published Uncommon Decency, with the subtitle Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. This was re-released in the fall of 2010, an election season marked by dueling versions, not merely of values, but of history and of facts. I spoke with him at that time. I think one element here that feels very dramatic and troubling to a lot of people watching this is um, it's not just conviction, but there's a sense in which the issues that are being taken up now and the spirit in which they're being taken up now plays fast and loose with the truth.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you're getting at something that I'm just really deeply disturbed about. For Christians who take the Bible seriously, it isn't that we have these convictions and then we also got to try to be civil. But the truth element of civility is itself one of the convictions. You know, I mean, if our repertoire of convictions includes this, that God tells us we must not bear false witness against our neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, then how can we be so fast and easy with uh, and loose with the uh, with telling the truth about others, uh, making these blanket statements about Muslims—I mean, I, you and I know Muslims who do not fit any of the stereotypical caricaturing kind of claims that are being uh, used these days—and yet people think nothing of just saying, "You know, the Quran is an evil book, and anybody who uh, right. who's devoted to the Quran." Is, is just an evil person I and mean, we' a billion just, people yeah y- yep yep
0: so you know i do want to name the fact that you write very seriously about um the potential downside to civility or civility superficially imagined right i mean yeah. relativism or some kind of superficial idea of accepting and affirming everything that that yeah. that's not where you want to go with this that's not where you think it's right. good for us even as a culture to go even when we hold different views about the territory we're navigating. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where does where does the example of Jesus come in? I mean, how do you how do you think of Jesus in terms of uh, avoiding relativism while while being civil, while being there for others? How do you?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, I I do think that Jesus is a model of civility of convicted civility. I mean, he, uh, you know, the murmuring against him that we read about in the gospel accounts is that this is a person who associates with harlots and with uh, corrupt tax collectors and, you know, other quote-unquote sinners Mm -hmm. in in the culture. And yet it's very clear that Jesus did not approve of prostitution or of... uh, compliance with the economic uh, practices of the Roman Empire, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it it was a clear case where Jesus reached out to people, but in none of that was he sacrificing uh, convictions about what is right, what is good, what is true. And uh, some of his uh, harshest uh, judgments were for uh, people who – were very condemnatory toward uh, other people, and not aware of their own sin, not aware of, aware of their own shortcomings. Right, you know? right.
0: And one of your, some of your, I want to talk as we move forward about some of the descriptions and prescriptions you have in, in your book for a gentler Christianity. And one of them is, for starters, concentrate on your own sinfulness and the other person's humanness. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, I I get that from John Calvin, uh, who probably a lot of people, if they know anything about the great 16th century reformer or have at least heard about something about Calvinism, do not think of uh, Calvinism as uh, a model of civility. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Calvin said that uh, a, a political leader who's thinking about going to war— uh, and he was not a pacifist. And so he would say, you know, sometimes we do need to go to war. But before we go to war, he said we, we need to go through two exercises. And the one is to uh, test out our own motives to make sure that we're not being carried away by some you know, evil motive in ourselves, like a, just a desire to grab land or, or uh, an un, uh, uncontrollable anger or spirit of vengeance And then he says, and we also have to reflect on the humanity of the other person. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of what I call a hermeneutic of uh, suspicion toward yourself and charity toward others.
0: Here's something that um, feels important to me to name, that we have a culture of fear, right?
2: Yeah.
0: And we know that when human beings, as as creatures, uh, I mean, we know this from brain science now, you know, that when we're acting out of fear, we are... We are not, people are not probably capable of asking those self-aware questions that you just posed, even if they are deeply religious and believe themselves to be acting
1: mm-hmm.
0: in a Christian way. So how can, I mean, and, and how do a Christian leaders like you and, and people at, at Fuller Seminary, how does theology respond both to, you know, maybe to that fear in order to make that other kind of self-awareness possible?
1: Yeah. That's interesting because I've been talking to some of my friends about, uh, you know, some of this stuff recently. And I, I've got to say to you, Chris, that, you know, when, when I talk to people who really like Glenn Beck and uh, in my part of the world, I, I run into a lot of folks like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've got to be honest with you and say one thing I can say to them is, you know, some of the things he's concerned about, I'm concerned about, too. I do worry about what's happening in our culture. Uh, I do worry about the uh, the ongoing, uh, I think, very bad effects of the sexual revolution. About a lot of the stuff that uh, we see on television and in film, and uh, in the in the kinds of things that are shaping our young people. And, and I think it's important to. Not just to say to people oh you 're all wrong and and you shouldn 't be carried away like that, but to say, uh, "I share a lot of those concerns, mm-hmm. and what are we going to do about that and uh, We have to be very careful uh, that we not sin in the process of uh, expressing and acting upon uh, those concerns you know i 'm pretty conservative <laughs> about a, about a lot of these these issues and I think it's uh, it's very important uh, for a leader to uh, approach people who are having a hard time controlling their fears. Uh, first of all, to identify, to the degree that we can, with integrity, to identify with those fears. And uh, I mean, it's sort of what you, you know, all of us who've been through therapy and all the rest. You know, the, the therapist doesn't say, "Well, that's a stupid way to feel." Right. You, you tell know.
0: somebody who's afraid how stupid they are, and you back them into a corner. And and I feel yeah. like that's that's one of the dynamics of our political life now, right? Yeah. Of this incivility.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's important for us to uh, empathetically approach the people that we're trying to influence and trying to serve. And uh, try to point up to a better way of dealing with with those issues and at the same time a more truthful assessment uh, of of the issues because uh, it's so easy when you're afraid to kind of uh, create an enemy that may not be the enemy that you, you think the person is.
0: up, we'll explore Richard Mao's prescription for starting a new kind of encounter and conversation among people on both sides of the issue of same-sex marriage, which he opposes. Producing this interview with him led to impassioned exchanges on our production team. For some of my colleagues, and perhaps for some of you, there's a question of whether religious views condemning homosexuality, however civilly expressed, inevitably fuel hateful, even fatal behavior. While we were in production on this show, Rutgers student Tyler Clementi committed suicide. At that time, he was the latest in a string of suicides by gay youth. In that climate, and with Richard Mao's perspective on my mind, I was struck by the tone in which the Southern Baptist leader, Albert Moeller, published a kindred open response to those suicides. He reiterated his unwavering theological conviction that homosexuality is a sin. But in words that echo Richard Mao's search for a new way of convicted civility, he declared, much of our response to homosexuality is rooted in ignorance and fear. And he asked of the faithful and of his church leaders, what if Tyler Clementi had been in your church? Would he have heard biblical truth presented in a context of humble truth-telling and gospel urgency— or would he have heard irresponsible slander, sarcastic jabs, and moralistic self-congratulation? Find Mueller's letter in its entirety on our blog. Also, read a report by Mormon journalist Joanna Brooks about a cathartic meeting between a senior Mormon elder and LGBT Mormons. That's all at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media.
2: This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles and audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. Perhaps you may enjoy memoirs from religious figures. Heavenly Man and Living Water each tell Brother Yun's story as one of China's most dedicated, courageous, and persecuted religious leaders. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com being. That's Audible Podcast .com/being On Being’s Civil Conversations Project is supported in part by funding from the Noor Foundation, exploring meaning and commonality in human experience online at noorfoundation.com
0: I’m Krista Tippett. This is the Civil Conversations Project from On Being. Today, restoring political civility. My guest, Richard Mao, believes that the measure of Christian integrity is as much about how one treats others as about the positions one takes. And he insists that we all must find whole new ways to be in relationship with different others, even while holding passionate disagreements. He's worked on this in his circles of influence for decades, finding models for civility amidst difference at the heart of the Bible and in the life of Jesus. Richard Mao is president of Fuller Theological Seminary. That's one of the largest centers of evangelical higher education in the world. What gets onto the radar, what makes it into the news are the very extreme moments and the extreme strident statements. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, though, are there discussions happening in the larger universe of evangelicalism and, and, and charismatic Christianity, which is also represented at Fuller? I mean, you have a lot of denominations at Fuller, and you have, yeah. you have a conservative liberal span as well. So is there soul-searching, is there leadership of the kind you talked about um, happening that's not making the news that the outside world is not privy to?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, what I'm experiencing with the younger generation of students at Fuller, and I also, you know, travel to a lot of uh, uh, evangelical college campuses, is that there's a younger generation coming up right now that uh, is embarrassed by the image of evangelicalism as uh, intolerant, <laughs> mean-spirited. Uh, There have even been some Barna surveys that have put some numbers on this. And if you take something like sexuality, for example, and all the debates over same-sex relations, I mean, a lot of uh, younger evangelicals who may very well agree with uh, the basic theology and the kind of understanding of biblical teaching that many of us have – you know, they got sisters who are lesbians, mm-hmm. though. Uh, they went to high school with kids who came out of the closet. And uh, they just see this in much more relational terms. And uh, the blanket, angry, uh, judgmental caricaturing of the gay, lesbian community just doesn't fit their sense of of who these folks are. And uh, it doesn't mean that there are different convictions, but it does mean that they they interpret the overall reality in very different terms. And so I think there's a good dialogue going on in the younger generation uh, of people who are, are wanting to uh, think differently, and especially when we have an opportunity in classrooms, uh, at colleges and seminaries to uh, kind of sit back and talk about these things. I mean, there, there's something wonderful about the the gift of leisure in uh, higher education, that hmm. we can actually sit back in a classroom, have people read things, uh, expose them to different points of view, and then really try to work through what a sensible assessment of all of us really, really comes to.
0: And then I – I mean I suppose you – I mean you are training people who are going to be out in churches who who will yeah. take the fruits of that leisure.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we can learn a lot from the past. I mean, you know, you and I both knew an American culture that was uh, very racist, uh, very segregated. You don't have as strong memories of that as I do, but uh, it was really there. And uh, a lot of our friends and loved ones, uh, we were in the, among the sort of in the intellectual community where uh, we were socialized to, be sensitive to this kind of thing, and then we'd we'd go home to family and friends, and they didn't quite get it, many of them. And yet, today, there are significant changes in uh, attitudes within those subcultures. And I think a lot of it had to do with with patient people in pulpits and in teaching roles and other kinds of leadership positions who were willing to... uh, uh, not just angrily denounce, but uh, try to tell the stories and uh, and probe some of the spiritual concerns that were at stake and I think we need to be doing that today on many of the things you and I are talking about here
0: i I'd, I'd like to in that spirit i'd like to ask you um you know kind of made a list of some Again, some descriptions and prescriptions that you have, and and uh, and I'd like to just ask you about the biblical and theological underpinnings of these. So, following on what you just said, you you wrote, "God has a gentle and reverent concern for public righteousness." So, tell me where yeah. you see that. How do you how do you know that?
1: Well, I I can I mean, I can go write the Bible verses. You know, in, in uh, First Peter, the the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, uh, a verse that. It's used all the time among evangelicals. Be ready at any time uh, to give a reason for the hope that lies within you of anyone who asks it of you, you know. And we've always said that. You know, we've always got to be making the case. We've always got to be defending our beliefs against people who disagree with us. But we saw them go on and quote the next part of that verse, which is, and do so with gentleness and reverence, you know. (laughs) And uh, I've often thought how different our theological and even our interreligious disagreements uh, would get played out if we constantly said to ourselves, I've got to treat the other person with gentleness and reverence. You know, I've I've experienced this in my own relations over the last decade or so with uh, with the Mormon community. You know, I, the the three religions that I take very seriously for dialogue are Judaism, Islam, and uh, and Mormonism, and that's just those are ones that I've chosen to concentrate on. And uh, so, in the case of uh, the Mormon community, uh, I just decided that I was going to listen. I was going to ask them, "What do you really believe?" You know, and to to try to get at An understanding of Mormonism, which, you know, I have real disagreements with a lot of things in it. But I wanted to be sure that what I was disagreeing with was really what they believed. And um, it's been a wonderful experience for me. And uh, that's really helped me to get at uh, a better sense of where the real differences are. And I, I don't want to get into all of that here. But I do think a gentle and reverent approach to people with whom we disagree is simply um, going to them and making sure that we understand them. You know, I mean, I, t- I tell this story of a, being in a parking lot, and uh, I, I saw a parking space in, in this mini mall, and I had to go into a grocery store. So I pulled into the parking space, and I heard somebody honking. And this woman, she, she was in a car, and, and it was obvious that she had been waiting for that space. I hadn't seen her, and she gave me the finger, and you know angry gestures and and went on. And I got out of the car, and I thought, I'm going to find her. So I went and looked, and sure enough, I found her parking in a a more distant place in the lot. And as she got out of the car, I just went up to her, and I said, you know, I took a parking place that you were waiting for, and I didn't realize it. And I just want to tell you, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I don't blame you for being angry with me. And she started to cry. And she said, you don't know what kind of day I've had. And she just stormed away, oh. and then after a little while, just a, a few steps, she turned around with tears streaming down her face, and she said, "Thank you," in a very gentle tone. You know, and I don't usually react that way, but that was a case, and I don't—I don't mean to make myself looking like this wonderful person, but that was a case where I—I I, I responded to somebody's anger with a gentleness and a reverence, and it paid off for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And a off for I, her. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I just think that you know you can go through the, the biblical teaching, and find all sorts of ways in which, uh, we you know G.K. Chesterton once said you know we it's bad to have false gods, but it's also bad to have false devils.
0: website you can read Richard Mao's short reflection titled "A Civil Hug," which contains the story he just told about the parking lot encounter and another story about an argument over a fee that resulted in an unexpected embrace. Find that at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett on Being: Conversation about Meaning, Faith, Ethics, and Ideas. Today we're exploring the role Christians, all kinds of Christians, might play in restoring political civility. My guest is a leading evangelical educator and Christian philosopher, Richard Mao. So here's another statement from you about just an essential Christian truth, which is, in affirming the stranger, we are honoring the image of God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I... I Going back to that Aristotle idea that, uh, you know, we all understand kinship and then we understand friendship. But then there's this person who is neither kin nor friend. But we have encountered them. And what is it that links me to them if it isn't just a lot of good feelings that I have about about people like that? And uh, what the Bible teaches is that every human being is created in a divine image. And this means that every human being... Is a you know, and this is where where I've been thinking more about this lately. Is a work of art, uh, and uh, seeing other people is a kind of exercise in art appreciation, and I find that very powerful. That uh, I, I I come across a person who isn't just a stranger, but maybe represents a strangeness to me that uh, initially. I might feel very alienated from that person and not to think uh this is a, a a work of art by the god whom I worship. Uh that god created that person. And uh and it doesn't come easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not I'm I'm kind of aesthetically deprived and so I have to work at it. But it's a very important exercise to engage in.
0: But you have been very clear and open across the years. For example, about your Uh, theological opposition to gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine that someone who is homosexual might hear what you just said and feel that, in fact, that doesn't find expression when you look at them.
1: Yeah. Well, and and it should. Uh, I have really tried to emphasize the fact that even in expressing our disagreements, and this is a very complicated thing, uh, but that we're dealing with people who are precious works of divine art. You know, I have argued on a number of occasions and and, and actually gotten some very positive response from folks in the gay, lesbian community that um, maybe I even re- wrote a Newsweek piece on this. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's time to stop yelling at each other and, and accusing each other in public. And maybe we ought to just sit down. And turn the agenda into something like this uh, where I would ask my gay and lesbian activist friends, uh, what is it about people like me that scare you so much? And that you in turn would listen to me when I say, what is it about what you are advocating that that worries me so much about the future of our culture and the world in which my grandchildren are being raised And that we talk about hopes and fears uh, rather than angrily denouncing each other as homophobes or as people who are engaged in, you know, uh, despicable behavior. But could that shape a very different kind of discussion as we move toward uh, the really important question is uh, how are we going to be able to live together in this pluralistic society uh, with at least some better understanding of what motivates us beneath the angry denunciations and things?
0: You know, I just want to read a bit of that piece you wrote in Newsweek. This was in January of 2009, and it was around the Prop 8 controversy. And uh, you wrote, can we talk? This is a plea to your fellow citizens on both sides of this divide over sexuality. Can we talk? I ask this as someone who has been one of the angry ones, angry about things that have been said about people like me. I've been on talk shows where people phone in to call me a fascist or equate me with those who burned accused witches at the stake. One remark that hit especially close to home was made by the editor of this magazine, Newsweek. He wrote that anyone, anyone who tries to make a scriptural case against same-sex marriage is guilty of, quote, the worst kind of fundamentalism, unquote. That hurt. I have spent several decades of my life trying to spell out an evangelical alternative to the worst kind of fundamentalism. My friends and I have argued that the Bible supports racial justice, gender equality, peacemaking, and care for the environment, views that often draw the ire of the worst kind of fundamentalists. But none of that seems to matter to folks who don't like our views about same-sex relations. And then you did end with this plea um, for people. You said you want to hear from people who worry about your views. Tell me, did people come back to you? Did you get that? (laughs) Did that talking start?
1: Yeah, I got hundreds of responses uh-huh. uh, they they divided into three groups one was just some other Christian folks who happened to agree with me people saying thank you for, for saying what you did the vast majority was angry stuff mm-hmm. uh, but I got some wonderfully uh, poignant people who said okay you've asked for let, let me tell you my experience you know, I was raised in a Southern Baptist home and uh, at a certain point I realized that uh, I was I was a lesbian and uh, the cruelty that they had experienced uh, it was uh, it was very gratifying that some people really took me up on it mm-hmm. I think uh, a growing, uh, yeah, sure, minority uh, segment of the Christian subculture uh, on the more conservative side of the, of the spectrum of people who are, are, are really willing to, to think uh, some new thoughts about how, how we deal with people, how we relate to people uh, with whom we, we disagree. And uh, I think some of it has to do with just the telling of stories. Mm. Uh, I spoke to a group of more conservative people in a mainline denomination and we were, you know, they, they, they know that I'm on the same side they are in terms of ordination questions and uh, performing of same-sex uh, civil unions and marriages and and the like. And uh, this couple came up to me afterward and thanked me and, you know, what's happening to our denomination and the like. And, and I finally just felt I had to say something to them. And I said, you know, at the same time, we need to deal with this in new ways. I mean, there's just a lot of folks out there who are, are really being hurt by the the angrier things. And all of a sudden, she started to cry. Mm. And they looked at each other, and it was like they gave each other permission. And then they said to me, our son is gay. And uh, uh, recently, he came home with his partner, and uh, we just decided that— Uh, We want to stay related to our son, and that meant that we had to accept uh, the two of them into our home. And they actually agreed to go to church with us on Sunday. And uh, at the end of the service, they said, we're glad we were with you today. And they said, you know, uh, we we realize that we need to uh, think some new thoughts and do some new things on this. And there are a lot of people out there right now who are just trying to figure out, how they're going to deal with this uh, pastorally, in family relations, uh, friendships. And um, it's not enough just to be standing on street corners holding up angry signs. It's not enough. It's even wrong to be (laughs) standing on street corners and holding up angry signs. Nor is it very helpful when people uh, who disagree with way more conservative types uh, simply constantly yell at us that we're homophobes and fascists.
0: You know, one thing you wrote is being civil isn't just trying to be respectful toward the people we know. It is also to care about our common life. And, you know, that might seem like a really simple sentence, but those words, our common life, which you italicize, (laughs) jump out at me. Um, Because that phrase has almost become foreign in American cultural discourse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? I mean, my my Catholic scholar friends have— some of them have written on the whole idea of the common good, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's a biblical idea. I mean, going back to that Jeremiah passage, you know, seek the welfare, the shalom of the of the city in which I placed you. And uh, we ought to be. And then when we think of a common life, you know, that the fact that our kids are going to school together, that. Uh, We are in the same parking lots. We are in the same supermarket aisles. We're driving the same freeways. Uh, We're attending the same uh, churches and synagogues and mosques and and all the rest. And and it's not just a a political bond, but that beneath all of that, there's something that that binds human beings together that politics can't create and it shouldn't be able to destroy. And uh, that we really need to be thinking as – people of faith, uh, how is it that our common life can, can flourish and uh, uh, even if it isn't going to be perfect and it isn't going to fit all of our convictions, uh, how can we have a, a flourishing common life together?
0: Richard Mao is president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. His many books include Consulting the Faithful and Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. So can we build a flourishing common life? even while holding deep disagreements on intimate, difficult issues? This is a core animating question of this Civil Conversations project, ideas and tools for healing our fractured civic spaces. Find this conversation with Richard Mao and other voices of wisdom, poetry, and practicality at onbeing.org. They include the civil rights elder Vincent Harding. He describes how Martin Luther King's vision might speak to our current domestic confusions and divisions. With a long lens on history, Vincent Harding also shares how lessons of that time can be powerfully useful for the young of today. Use these shows and transcripts as resources for new conversations in your family and community and tell us what happens. Find it all at onbeing.org. And consider joining the rich community of dialogue on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onbeing. Or follow us on Twitter, our handle, at beingtweets. program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Our web developer is Anne Breckbill, Trent Gillis is our senior editor, Kate Moose is executive producer, and I'm Krista Tippett.
2: supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: This is APM American Public Media.